Alright, back to our series in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6 of Mark is a turning point in this Gospel. If you remember when we first started the series, I ran this as the theme, the King's Cross, and then moved away from it because in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we're allowed to look into pictures of the kingdom and the king as we're given parables and miracles describing who this Jesus is and what does it mean for his kingdom to arrive. Now in chapter 6, we're going to now see a merging of who is this Jesus and all of the problems that that causes for believing in Jesus. This is why we're seeing this theme in Mark as the King's Cross is here is the King, but it's going to be a picture of suffering. It is a picture of sacrifice. It is a picture of pain and difficulty. It is the the picture that the Gospel of Mark wants to paint is showing us what it means to be a disciple of his. What does it look like to follow him? What is required of the individual who says, I believe in Jesus and I want to be his disciple, but what do I have to do? What does that look like? That's the challenge that's going to be laid out for us over the next few chapters as we explore the gospel of Mark. And I want to state as an aside, a lot of these lessons are going to be tough. You know, we, we sometimes think of the Gospels as, you know, the, the warm, fuzzy feelings of the life of Jesus until the very end, then it's kind of sad there. But, you know, everything's warm and fuzzy up until then. And, and Mark does not let you go that way. What we're going to read in the Gospel of Mark is really difficult pictures of what it looks like to be a disciple and the, the heavy cost that's required of that. I've mentioned for a long time my desire to do the book of Hebrews with you. I feel that because we're coming to the end of our Exodus and Numbers study, and because of the weightiness of where Mark is going to go, my desire is, don't hold me to it exactly, but hopefully around once a month, I want to do Hebrews with you on Sunday morning. And the reason why is because the book of Hebrews is all about don't give up. And I know that Mark is going to be hard telling you, here's what it means to be a disciple. It's hard. And so I want to roll Hebrews in and go, it's hard. Don't give up and kind of just work back and forth with us. So that is my plan goal going forward on our Sundays is I believe next Sunday morning, I'll introduce Hebrews. We'll get going with that. Come back to Mark, do some Mark, roll a Hebrews every once in a while. Mark, 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 a little bit of Hebrews. That's the idea of what we're doing. But I just want you to see that there is method to the madness and there's a lot of madness, no doubt. Uh, but there is a reasoning behind it that I believe it will be encouraging as we, we start following in the footsteps of Jesus about this discipleship that Hebrews will come alongside of that encourage us to take that walk uh, with him. Uh, As was read for us, we're going to look at the the first 29 verses of chapter 6. That might sound a little bit unusual because when you look at these three sections that are presented in these 29 verses, um, it seems like these are completely separate stories with no real connection whatsoever. 
And, and uh, if you know me, I've stood on my head and said there's always literary connections. The, the author is doing something, even though it's difficult for me sometimes to see it. There's always a reason why these things are, are, are put there. And this morning I want you to see that as well as we look at each of these three uh, accounts that Mark gives to us. We're going to notice what the message is in each of the three and then get the big idea of how we would connect all that together at the very end of the lesson. In the first six verses, you'll notice that in chapter 6 and verse 1, we have Jesus and He goes away and He comes to His hometown. He comes to Nazareth and His disciples are following Him and He begins to teach in the synagogue, verse 2. And you'll notice it says there that they are astonished when they heard Him. They're amazed by His teaching. But notice what their amazement does. In the middle of verse 2, here's what they say. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They are astonished by the teachings. They are amazed by what He says. But notice that their amazement does not lead to faith. They do not go, wow, this teaching is just radical. We've learned so much. It is staggering. We want to follow Jesus. Rather, it becomes an offense to them. It's now a stumbling block to them. And they start asking these questions. And you'll notice that these are really doubting questions. Who is this guy? Where did he get this kind of teaching? Where did this wisdom come from? How is he doing these things from these hands? And we know who his mother is, and we know who his brothers are, and aren't these his sisters here too? Notice it is simply a a way to deflect just faithless questions. This can't be right. Who is this guy? One of the things that the ancients really believed in strongly, and when you read this you'll recognize we still do it too, is that geography and your heritage, who your parents were and who you descended from, dictated your capabilities. It dictated what you were able to be. And that's what they're expressing here. Yes, we do have the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, and yeah, that's part of it. But that's really not the whole of it. Their problem is, we know where you're from. We know the thinking that people had about Galileans, people from Nazareth, wasn't of the highest regard. They were not considered the scholars of the ancient world. We know where this man's from, and we know your parents. So, how can you have this wisdom? How can you be doing these things? How can you perform these signs? We know who your brothers are. We know who your sisters are. Aren't you just a carpenter? Smart things shouldn't be coming out of a carpenter's mouth. No offense there are all the carpenters, but that's the argument they're making. That's what they're saying. You didn't go to Old Testament University. You're a carpenter. So where are you getting this stuff? You can't be saying these things. We shouldn't be listening to you. And you know, that does happen today too. 
You know, well, you don't have a PhD, THD, Masters in Divinity, and so who are you to say anything? You're not smart enough to know the Word of God. Or geography. Well, you come from the backwoods, so you clearly don't know anything. Or my favorite of Californians, there's no Christians in California. There are all a bunch of terrible sinners out there. I've heard that. That's okay. Uh, Fair enough. Geography, I guess. That's what they're doing. We know where you're from. We know your parents. You can't be anybody. Your teachings can't be right. You're a nobody. And Jesus' answer to that is pretty stunning in verse 4 when He says, you know, a prophet will have honor everywhere except in his hometown and from his family. (laughs) You know, it's like everybody else has had quite a reception regarding Jesus, but here, come to your own hometown. Well, we know who you are. We know who your parents are. We're not going to buy into this. We're not going to follow you. And I want you to see something that perhaps is the most stunning declaration you might read in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You catch that? He can't do a mighty work there. What we've seen for the first five chapters in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus is performing mighty works everywhere He goes. And notice that how it just says He, he is able to heal a few sick people, but that's, not, that's it. He can't do anything else. And what you are getting Mark laying out for us very boldly is that a lack of faith blocks what Jesus can do for a person. A lack of faith will block what Jesus is able to do for a person. Now we need to consider for a moment, is this saying because they had no faith, Jesus couldn't do anything in terms of His power? And Well, no, we read in many other places with Jesus and the apostles, there are people who demonstrate zero faith, and Jesus or the apostles will perform a miracle. That's not the idea. That's not what Mark is getting at. Rather, what Mark is saying is, because of who Jesus is, there's only a couple of people who are willing to come to Him. Because they're looking at Him and saying, you grew up around here. We know your upbringing. We know your parents. We see your brothers. We know your sisters. And that's why they refuse to come to Him for healing. The reason why He can't do any work there is because nobody wants to be healed. Nobody wants to receive Him. Nobody sees Him for who He is. And notice the little statement, except a few where He could heal them. There's a couple. There's a couple people who come to Jesus and they get it. And they receive healing from Him. But think about that. It's a whole town. And they go, we know who you are. And it's pretty startling when you can read verse 6 say that Jesus was amazed by their unbelief. It makes you wonder how easy or difficult it is to amaze Jesus. (laughs) You think about all He knows and all He sees and He comes to His own hometown here and He's stunned, amazed, astonished, marveling. These people don't believe in Him. 
And He can't heal them. He can't rescue them. Instead, He's rejected. By His own family, we know that from His brothers. By His own hometown, by the people that know Him well, by synagogue leaders, here He is in the synagogue. Everybody knows who He is. They hear Him speak. And notice in verse 2, none of them say, well, He didn't really perform a miracle, or His teachings are not really wise. No, that's not it. They say, where do these wise teachings come from? And how does He do these things? There's no denial of the wisdom of the words that He's speaking. Nor is there a denial of the works that He's doing. It's simply, I know who you are. We will not follow you. We will not believe you. That's how this transitions at the end of verse 6 as he goes now into the village's teaching. In verses 7 through 13, he now sends out the twelve. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples now are sent out. But I want you to notice the message that Jesus gives these disciples. Here the king has come. Here is the long-awaited Savior Messiah that Mark has presented to us as the one who has come to rescue. He's come to heal. He's come to save. He's come to take care of your spiritual problems. He will resolve them. And now he appoints the twelve and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to all these towns and all these villages and I give you my authority and so that you will be able to cast out demons and you'll be able to heal the sick. I want you to go as my representatives and be carrying that authority and go into the towns. And when you go into the towns and you tell them about me, what you're going to have is astonishing success that every city and every town is going to love you. They're going to hug you. They're going to feed you. They're going to think you are so wonderful because you are carrying the message of me that the king has arrived who has come to save you from your sins. It's not quite that pump-up speech, is it? No, what Jesus says is, I want you to hardly take anything with you. I want you to trust in God to provide for you in this. And if you go someplace and they receive you, you should stay there. Stay there the whole time. Because you're going to go to a lot of houses. And you're going to go to a lot of towns. And they're not going to receive you. Just consider that Jesus does not give them a pep rally and say, it's going to go great everywhere you go. He's telling them, you're going to have whole towns like what just happened in Nazareth say, no. And you're going to go to homes and you're going to talk to them and you're going to tell them about me and they're not going to care. 
And even though you don't have anything with you, you have no money in your belt, you have not taken extra provisions, you do not have extra clothes, they're not going to allow you into your home. Now, to us, we'd go, yeah, no doubt, we don't take strangers. Remember ancient hospitality culture. Too bad we don't have that still. You brought people into your home. Somebody had a need, they were traveling through, they stayed with you. You gave them what they needed, provided for them. It's the whole parable of the Good Samaritan, the case did a little while back. That's what you did for people who were in need. And he's saying, even though you have the need, guess what? People aren't going to care. They're not going to like what you say. Because I want you to notice, even though they have all that authority, they're going to experience the rejection. Why? Look at verse 12. Why are they going to be rejected? Because they're going to go out and proclaim what? A message of the Gospel of Mark. You're going to go out and proclaim for people to repent. Boy, people like that. People really love the message of repentance. They love you're doing wrong, change your life. (laughs) You don't have God the way you're going. You need to change your ways before it's too late. Seek the ways of the Lord and not your own ways. Stop your selfish desires and follow the desires of the Lord. They love that. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples. You're going to go and proclaim repentance. And you're going to be met with all kinds of resistance. It's the very same message back in in Mark 1 verse 4. What is John the baptizer running around preaching? Repentance. And back in 115, what's Jesus preaching? Gospel of the kingdom. Telling people to repent. The king has arrived. You need to change your ways. You need to change your life. You need to stop living the way that you're living. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear to these disciples, that's not going to go well for you when you do that. And I'm going to make you trust me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, it's not going to go well for you, so you need to load a camel up with all kinds of supplies and provisions. You need weeks of water and weeks of food. If it's me, let's get the refrigerator strapped on that thing because we're going to need it. I don't say that. You'd say, okay, now be sure to empty out your bank account, put it in your belt because it's going to be rough. All they have are one-day provisions. All right, now go. God's going to take care of you, but that doesn't mean you're not going to have rejection. God's going to take care of you to go preach this message of repentance. But people are going to slam their doors in your face. There are going to be people that are going to say, no way, we're not going to help you. We don't want you to get out. And notice the response is just simply, you know, shake the dust off your feet. Make sure they understand you came as a representative of God and you leave it at that. And you go on to the next town. You go on to the next group of people. But you're going to be experiencing rejection because of what you're preaching. You've seen the thread so far? Verse 14. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had been known. 
Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. It is interesting how often this question comes up in the Gospels. And Mark does it a couple of times. Here he brings it up again. Who is this Jesus? What is going on with him? That's a big question. Who is he and what are you going to do with him? And you notice the town of Nazareth. Rejection. And what will be the response of the other towns? Some will accept, some will reject. And now as Herod hears of this, the question now is forming, well, who is this Jesus? And Herod, he says, well, here's who this is. That guy that I had beheaded and killed, John, is apparently raised from the dead. John the baptizer is raised from the dead. That's who this guy is. Let's read this, the rest of this account and think about as we're reading this, why is this here right now in the midst of Mark? Such a strange location to describe the death of John the baptizer in the midst of this discussion about Jesus and his preaching, especially since we saw John in chapter 1. Why didn't we talk about his death back in chapter 1? Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked, said to her mother, For what should I ask? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Startling scene that seems out of place to the flow of what we're reading about Jesus and his teaching of repentance. That's such a fascinating picture that's given to us. You'll notice that Herod has John arrested. Why was John arrested by Herod? Because John's preaching repentance also. 
Notice that line that is so strong there when it tells us in verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What's John doing? Telling Herod to repent. It's not lawful what you're doing. You can't do that. That's wrong. And He just kept telling them that. And Herod finally arrested him. He got sick of hearing it. He doesn't kill him because he recognizes he's a holy and righteous man. Interesting problem in your head on that. Uh, He's clearly from God, holy and righteous, but I don't like what you're saying, so I will put you in prison. And as an aside, I would just like to make an observation with you. Please note that verse 18 points out there are some marriages that are unlawful. Can I just, I mean, that'll be a whole other sermon for you. I won't go there. You just make your own sermon right there in your head. There are marriages that the law allows in the land that are unlawful. And that's what Herod's running around saying. He's telling Herod, your marriage is not right. Your marriage is unlawful before God. And Herod didn't like it. So what does Herod do? Has him cast in in prison. But interesting what happens here is that his wife Herodias wants him killed. Herod does no, I know he's a good man. I know he's a righteous man. I don't want to kill him. But Herodias can't stand him. Whatever we can do to get him killed. And it plays out in the scene of Herodias' daughter dancing in such a way that Herod is so pleased that he's willing to give up half the kingdom. That's a whole nother, you've got to be kidding me of wickedness. And then the wickedness only compounds itself that the thing that you would want is this man's head on a plate. I want you to see something that we observed very early on in the Gospel of Mark that now is put very strongly before us. Remember in Mark 1, we were shown that Jesus, or that John is the forerunner of Jesus. We talked about how John being the forerunner, though, was not merely that he was the forerunner in terms of saying, hey, here comes Jesus, prepare the way of the Lord. That was part of his role. But the other part of his role was that what John was going to go through and experience was also what Jesus would go through and experience. He's a forerunner, not merely in teaching, but he's a forerunner in experience as well. And notice the parallels that Mark highlights in this. You'll notice that they're both being put to death by the civil authorities. You'll notice that there is hesitation in doing it, though. Herod doesn't want to kill him. Pilate doesn't want to kill him. But it ends up capitulating to the pressure and the scheming that has gone on in the background to finally make it so. And notice how the scene even ends there in verse 29, that they take the body and lay it in a tomb. What's happening to John the baptizer is what is going to happen to Jesus. He is going to be executed by civil authorities. And how this all plays out is going to be very similar because the message that Mark is presenting is that to be a true follower of Jesus means that we must be ready to suffer, we must be willing to die, and we must be willing to continue to preach repentance in the face of opposition. 
Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. Nobody wants to hear him. What do they do? They keep preaching somewhere else. And Jesus tells his disciples, when you go into towns, there's going to be places that are not going to accept your teaching. What are you supposed to do? Keep preaching, go somewhere else. And John has been going around preaching repentance. And what happens to John? He gets arrested. And he's put in prison because he's preaching repentance and saying, what you've done is unlawful. And it gets to such a point that John gets killed for what he was preaching. What's Mark trying to say? John sacrifices his life, meets resistance and rejection as he proclaims repentance and the good news of Jesus. Jesus meets resistance and opposition as He proclaims the good news about His kingdom and proclaims repentance. The disciples meet opposition and resistance as they go about preaching repentance and telling people to come to the Lord and do what is right. And what will happen to the readers of this gospel? That's the thread, is that the mission continues even though we're rejected. That what happens to John, what happens to Jesus, what happens to his disciples can very well happen to us. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It is something that I have tried to speak to quite a few times because I think it is important. I have spoken that I believe that we have been in our country In a wonderful, I do not slander in the slightest, a wonderful, wonderful bubble where being a Christian is positive, thought highly upon, and looked upon in a good light until just recently. It was socially acceptable. In fact, there was something wrong with you if you didn't go to church. And that has changed. And my observation to you is that where we are going is not new. Where we have been was new. Where we are going is the way it's always been. You are rejected for proclaiming repentance. You will face opposition for being a follower of Jesus. You must be willing to suffer. You may be ready to die because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus historically, globally, except for in America the past couple hundred years. And for us not to be slow cooked by that, to think something's weird that we proclaim repentance And tell people that what they're doing is wrong and we face all of this resistance. That's not abnormal. They did it to John. They did it to Jesus. They did it to their disciples. They'll do it to us. We cannot shrink back from proclaiming the message of the gospel and what's entailed with the gospel, which is repentance just because there's going to be resistance. Chapter 6 is trying to show us this is the message of being a disciple. This is 
the difficulty. This is the carrying of the cross. That disciples will face difficulties and hardships, be persecuted, be rejected, be scorned upon, be social outcasts. I cannot wait to start Hebrews with you. The book of Hebrews is so our world. Remember, the writer of Hebrews does not say, you know, you guys are dying left and right. No, he even points out, you aren't to the point of shedding blood, but what has happened? They are being socially ostracized and socially set apart. And he writes a book and says, don't give up. And here's Mark going, guess what? That's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be. And the challenge then as we close this morning is that we are faced with a decision. We are faced with a decision that do we desire Jesus so strongly that we are willing to accept opposition, resistance, being cast out, slandered, maligned, labeled, called names, but for the sake of the gospel we accept it. Because we understand that's what it means to tell people about Jesus, that we will be rejected. Or do we only follow Jesus to the point of self-preservation? And if it comes to saying things about me, now I'll step back. You start putting a label on me, I'll step back. Socially ostracize me, I'll step back. Say that I'm rejected and cast out, I'll step back. Don't make me suffer. Friends, we're on that teetering point in our culture right now. We're sitting right on that teetering point. And we have a grave decision to make before us. Do we understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? And thank God we've enjoyed such a peaceful time in our past. But that peace does not look promising in the future. And we cannot stop proclaiming repentance just because hometown, other towns, family, and others don't like the message. It's the mission. It's why we're here. It's what we've been called to do. Who is this Jesus to you? Is He the Son of God who is worth suffering and dying for Or is this just kind of a casual country club Sunday thing? That we like getting together to enjoy each other's company. Good potluck last week, you know, it's all kind of fun. But don't make me put it on the line. John doesn't step back and say, you know what, I think I should calm down my teaching on Herod's marriage. The disciples do not step back and go, I guess we ought to change that up a little. We must proclaim the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is to tell people the way you're going is a loss of eternity. God loves you. He's patient. And wants you to turn back before it's too late. That is our invitation to you this very morning to turn away from your sins, to turn away from a life of following your own desires and your own will, 
the laws of our land and our culture are leading us in a direction that do not conform to what the Scriptures say is true, right, and just. We must make a decision. Will we follow Jesus so that we can be in eternity with Him forever? Or will we be concerned about life here and now and lose eternity? Please turn away from sin. And please be willing to accept the challenge to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And I look forward to showing you in the Gospel of Mark and in the book of Hebrews in the upcoming lessons how we can mentally and physically prepare ourselves for that kind of reality that you see in the first century. Will you come to Jesus now? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?